tell me how social media impacts the environment. Really, apart from the fact that a high percentage of people do it from the toilet, I don't see the relevance. Sorry about the example. This was a response from a Twitter user when we asked the followers of the European Investment Bank whether they thought Twitter and other social media was good for the environment, whether people think it's helping or hurting the climate. They didn't think it has an impact. And that's not really their voice, by the way. That's the voice of someone we only know as English, UK, female, at a website converting text to speech called ttsreader.com. You copy in some text, and the website will read it out to you in a language and a voice that you prefer. It's another one of those nifty digital services that we have these days, together with Twitter, uh, the phone that you're listening to this podcast on, and many other things. So are all these digital things good for the environment, for climate? I don't find any relevance in the question. Of course, it's a great tool for civic discussion and mobilization. Altogether, in our completely unscientific poll of Twitter users, 63% thought social media was good for the environment. But maybe they don't have the full story. Don't be scared. This is the podcast that always leaves the light on. This is Monster Under the Bed, the podcast that takes some of the fears and myths in our society and busts them wide open. My name is Alar Tankler. So the monster we're tackling today is not really a monster. It's more like a fairy. It's this idea that digitalization does away with all the real-world consequences of our actions, of our consumption. For example, if you replace a printed newspaper or a book with an electronic one, you have suddenly reduced your CO2 footprint, right? Well, stay with me to find out. Because you see, we treat digitalization like a magical pixie dust that Tinkerbell sprinkles on old industries to make them all suddenly environmentally friendly. So today's episode is called The Digital Pixie Dust Cleanup. This podcast series explores different myths, fears and beliefs, misconceptions which are costing us as a society. We talk to experts at the European Investment Bank to find out the truth behind these myths. If you enjoy this series and are new to us, subscribe to this podcast and rate us. And also, get in touch to let us know what you think. I'm at Alar Tankler on Twitter. That's A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. I spoke to Shirley Risk, who works as a credit risk officer at the European Investment Bank. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Her last name is Risk, and she is working in risk management. But even more surprisingly, she has taken a very active interest in the climate impact of the digital sector. Here's why. 
Well, in EIB, we're trying to uh, finance projects which will mitigate uh, climate change, and I'm working on a lot of uh, such operations. I'm also looking at how climate change could uh, have negative financial impact uh, on uh, our banks and on the society as a whole. And doing that, I became more and more interested in the subject. I started to read, and being a mother of two, I started to be frightened for the future of my children. And uh, I thought, okay, what can I do? as a person also to uh, decrease my carbon footprint and how can I help the others doing so and I became aware that actually digital activity which I really didn't think of as a highly pollutant um, activity was actually one of uh, the important drivers of my carbon footprint and I thought okay this is something that I can easily act upon. So how much exactly is the digital sector polluting? Well, digital sector today represents 4% of the global emissions of CO2. That's uh, double the emissions of the civil aviation. And it's growing very rapidly, 9% per year. And with this pace, by 2025, uh, digital activity could emit as much CO2 as the total uh, cars uh, in the world. So it turns out that all this virtual activity has quite non-virtual consequences. We speak of keeping our files in the cloud, for example, as if it's all thin air, whereas actually the cloud is a bunch of servers requiring energy to run and to cool and to access. No, it's true. I mean, we talk a lot about dematerialization, but it's actually a myth because, I mean, when uh, you communicate through the internet, you need uh, your individual hardware, your phone, your computer. Then you need a network which will channel the information. Then at the end, you will need, well, or in the middle, so you will need data centers which will either uh, store the information or will enable it to, to pass through to another data center. And that's a lot of hardware. That's a lot of energy to fuel the hardware, but also to allow the information to to um, to move uh, so in the end that's really not immaterial i mean you need a lot of commodities to build the hardware you need rare earth rare metals uh, with very uh, polluting uh, mining processes and then you need all the energy to to fuel all these uh, these systems and it's true that a lot of operators are not are now working uh, with uh, renewable energy but we know that renew- renewable energies are not growing fast enough to uh, allow us to to stay within the the compliance of the Paris Agreement. Uh, So we should ask ourselves whether this is the right allocation of resources. I mean, for the transition to succeed, clean electricity based on renewable is key. So we cannot afford it to allocate to, uh, you know, disproportionately to the digital sector when the use of the digital sector is actually a lot for uh, videos or uh, things that are not uh, crucial. Crucial, exactly. So the question is, are we using digital services for really useful things? As the Twitter user in the beginning suggested, Twitter can, at least in theory, be used to educate people about their environmental footprint and to mobilize climate protesters, for example. Or it's a platform for cat videos. Whether you use it for education or for cat videos, The amount of energy it consumes is similar. And even when it uses renewable sources, it takes away renewable power from other things that we might need energy for. There's also a second aspect where the digital services are competing with potentially more critical solutions, especially as we're discussing climate action. Renewable energy technology needs many of the same metals and other materials required 
for digital technology? We're talking of um, metals which are in very limited um, amount uh, for the moment, uh, I mean, for the, the reserves that we know, and very rare earth. So what we call rare earth, it's really metals that are in, in tiny, uh, that we find in tiny proportions uh, in the environment. It's like if you compare with bread, it's like the salt that you put in the bread. So, I mean, refining this is really water intensive, energy intensive, and you don't have a lot of quantity for the moments found in nature. And the uh, solutions to enlarge uh, those reserves is really to dig into the ocean. So we're talking of other major uh, polluting processes. So for the moment, these, re these resources are very limited. And once again, we should think of the right allocation of these resources and maybe it's smarter to put them in solar panels than in a new iPhone that you will change every year. You know, it's better to keep your iPhone for five years. I mean, a smartphone has 40 of these, in average, 40 of these rare metals inside. So it's it's really uh, something that we should keep in mind when we buy new, new hardware. There's a lot of construction noise out here, so I don't know if you can hear me, but I'm walking over now to meet with uh, the European Investment Bank's head of division for digital infrastructure, Harald Gruber, uh, to ask him what the industry is doing to reduce uh, the environmental footprint of the digital sector. So, Harald, is, in your assessment, is the digital sector, digitalization in general, is it beneficial for the environment or detrimental to it? Of course, you can have digitaliz with digitalization an impact that can be detrimental to environment. But at the same time, you can also do things which are beneficial ultimately to the environment. So, so you mean that it depends on what we do with the technology? Precisely. For instance, you can first of all say that uh, the digital sector per se has a footprint because it needs energy to be activated. All the equipment runs on electricity, as you know. Now, what you can basically do is that basically try to become that uh, or to get those uh, devices more energy efficiency so that you can do more with it using less energy. So this is what is called its own footprint of, of the technology. Clearly, you have also an impact on the volume of what you're doing is on one hand you get per unit of activity you use uh, less energy but on the other hand the activities the volume of activities increases so fast that this efficiency gain per unit is more than overwhelmed by the increase of the, of the activity this phenomenon was first observed with coal and the steam engine in the 19th century England. James Watt came up with a much more efficient design for a steam engine. So people forecasted naturally that the demand for coal will go down, except for one economist, William Stanley Jevons, who correctly predicted that the increased efficiency of steam will mean that more people will start to use steam engines, thus driving up the demand for coal. This Jeevan's paradox, as it's known, can also be seen with digital technologies. The more efficient they are, the more they become to be used in everything from fridges to cars. And thus, despite the increased efficiency, the overall amount of energy consumed by the digital economy keeps going up. You can also see how you can reduce the device 
the, the, the energy impact of those who are using the devices. Is it substitute or complementary to energy consumption? You mean if, if they're doing something less because of the technology or, or they're just using more energy because they're doing more things? Exactly. If now through digitalization you can get now online booking and you do more flights, it has clearly a negative impact, the digital technology. But on the other hand, if you can use the technology basically to replace experiences that before you you needed to go to a place uh, to do a meeting or something like that now you can do it with digital uh, technologies from the place you are you have it's basically it's a substitute so it depends very much of how we conceive our activities is it complementary so it increases the footprint over footprint or is it a substitute it basically boils down to this are we using digital services instead of more polluting analog solutions? Or are we continuing to pollute in analog and also now polluting digitally as well? But apart from what the users, both individuals and industries are doing with the technology, is the digital industry itself looking at ways to improve its climate footprint? Clearly the equipment industry is very keen on providing energy efficient equipment because it's for them, it is a sort of a competition because performance of a device is very tightly linked to be more energy efficient. So you have a basic incentive to get the device more energy efficient because you can pack more performance on, onto the system. And that's also one of the things that the fifth generation of uh, mobile technology is supposed to do. In addition to being faster and better, it's supposed to be more energy efficient, right? Precisely. So that basically the, the 5G in principle per unit of output, if you compare the output, it's much more, it, it's a multiple more energy efficient uh, in its activity. Clearly, if 5G then is asked to do things which was if 4G was not possible, like, I, I don't know, autonomous driving and those kind of things, clearly, again, you have this volume effect that I mentioned before. So you do more, but it is done in a way that before was not even possible because it consumed too much energy. So it was not possible to do with certain types of devices. So it's the energy efficiency that was induced by technological progress which allows now us to do things that before were not possible. Autonomous driving is an interesting example because autonomous driving would mean a huge increase in the data volume being transmitted over digital technology requiring a lot of energy and materials for the equipment. In theory it could lead to huge traffic efficiencies. It could mean that a lot of us give up on personal car ownership since uh, hailing an autonomous car on the street would simply be so easy. And with all the spare time we have, instead of uh, watching the road, what are we going to do? Are we, um, I don't know, going to knit a sweater? Or maybe we're going to sit in our autonomous car, surfing the web, and buying something that has to be shipped into our homes from somewhere many, many CO2 tons away. Or you can imagine a scenario where autonomous driving means you will ask your car to drive itself back home after it has dropped you off at work and to come back to pick you up again after five o'clock. That's doubling its daily mileage. And let's face it, you will probably watch cat videos in your autonomous car. So measuring these scenarios seems like an incredibly difficult task, but it seems clear that in some areas, the benefits of digitalization, also for the environment, could be huge. 
we are still at the sort of the of, at the starting level now people begin to realize uh, that first of all the digital is part of the solution and therefore you need to carefully think about the different options for uh, for how to deploy technology I mean very uh, very easy examples are for instance smart cities where you use digital technology to to channel the traffic in the most appropriate way so basically you need something that's sort of overriding all the traffic uh, system, the, the signaling system, in a way that the traffic is guided in the most fluent way. That's one of the ways that, that, uh, that you need. But the cities are very reluctant to invest in, the, in those kind of, uh, of systems, so they need to have very strong incentives because simply they are not that apparent uh, immediately to, to the users and somebody may think that, okay, I'm now guided by a system, I want to go from A to B, but I have to go over C because of environmental reasons. So it is uh, it is a question of, of culture probably to, that that such elements are thinking in so that basically you need to make to do things different for the sake of environment and the benefits of digitalization in the developing world are even greater clearly experts agree that uh, digitalization has a huge developmental impact if a fisherman knows by the mobile phone which port he has to steer his uh, his catch to it it is a worse a lot to the fishermen in the same way that farmers that they know what where they have to to basically transport the crop to because you do have very uh, very poor transport uh, facilities very poor roads so it has basically it has a huge impact on their well-being so these are anecdotal examples, but you can have also much broader, if you want, macroeconomic examples, because digitalization helps uh, developing countries to develop not in the way that we industrialized countries have developed. I mean, our, in, our developmental process is, was hugely energy intensive, as, uh, as everybody can see, because everybody, all those countries have gone through factories, smoke and all those kind of things, environmentally very uh, negative impacts of, of, of basic of development. With digitalization, there is scope of creating uh, activities and, and, and basically environmental models and developmental models which are much more neutral towards environment. And therefore, clearly, these kind of technologies should be used in those countries, especially if you think also about the demographic effect, because if you if you use uh, the per capita consumption of CO2 uh, for development, you can see that clearly development does not become sustainable if they would do it in a traditional way. So you need digitalization to, for the long run to allow those countries to develop, to, to, to basically increase the economic well-being without being as negative to the environment as, as our event, uh, developmental model was. So I was glad to hear that digitalization can have environmentally positive effects, but I was still worried about whether I'm doing all I can personally. So I went back to Shirley to ask for simple things that an individual could do better. I think it's like for everything else, it's the famous three R's, you know, the reuse, reduce and recycle. Um, in rich countries, we've, we've been changing our smartphones in average every two years. I mean, it's just 
very necessary. Okay, sometimes it's not our fault. You also have the programmed obsolescence. So it's something that should be fought on two fronts, both with the, the manufacturers and with us as, as consumers. But of course, enlarging the, the life of our devices is key. Also thinking of the use that we have for entertainment uh, is something key. And today, um, the energy consumed by the electricity, the, sorry, the digital um, sector is uh, 45% consumed by the production of hardware, so reducing is really key, and 55% by data traffic. And out of this 45%, 80% is video. So if you were just watching less video, less Netflix, less... By the way, out of this 80%, 27% is porn, so we should also think of, you know... <laughs> It's related to other societal uh, uh, topics. Um, so we should really think of, you know, how we're using all this capacity that can be really great for humanity as, you know, knowledge sharing and enable, enabling us to communicate better. I'm not saying that, you know, we should be back to the, to the caves, but we should really think, you know, is it worth storing 1,000 selfies? You know, we're taking, I don't know how many every day. I mean, couldn't we just delete and keep the best one? I mean, it's really small steps that we can take and that, that can make a difference. Well, you could store your big files on uh, external hard drives, for example, rather than storing them on the on the cloud. Also, uh, cleaning up your mailbox is, I mean, something that sounds really stupid, but there are 10 billion uh, emails exchanged every hour, and that's that consumes a huge amount of energy as well. And apparently, uh, studies show that out of these 10 billion of emails, only 20 percent are actually read. So, uh, unsubscribing exactly from newsletter, from commercial emails. Uh, fighting spans, cleaning up your email because storing an email then has a cost also because it stays on the you know the the, the data centers. Yes, really, I mean reducing and there again. What about this podcast? Is that more? climate friendly than a, a video for example it is yeah there is a huge difference between a, an audio file and a video file so if we if you want to listen to songs for for instance don't use youtube uh, use spotify or deezer or i don't know in any other server that makes a huge difference Phew. i was glad to hear that doing this podcast wasn't the worst thing we could do for the environment and i hope that at the very least it made you think about your digital consumption we are coming to the end of this season of Monster Under the Bed. But if you like what you heard, check out some of the other episodes on healthcare, urbanization, and many other issues where we often think in myths, uh, believe in fairy dust, and fear the non-existent monsters under the bed. Also, please rate and review this podcast if you can, and tell me what you think. I'm at Tankler on Twitter. This was Monster Under the Bed by the European Investment Bank, the EU's climate bank.